This episode of Converge with my guest, J.D. Roth of Get Rich Slowly, is sponsored by Fast Track Creative. For more information, check out FastTrackCreative.com. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things, and when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work, and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. Ten years ago, J.D. Roth had more than $35,000 in debt and was living paycheck to paycheck. Now he has no debt and more than a million dollars in the bank. The change didn't happen by magic. He didn't learn how to turn straw into gold, and the process of changing his life didn't happen right away. Instead, he learned the time-tested principles of putting his money to work, making wise choices, and adjusting his habits in a slow and steady approach to true freedom. These are the words of Chris Gillibo describing J.D. Roth, his friend and previous speaker at the World Domination Summit. We have the privilege of getting to know J.D. a little bit today on Converge, but uh, more than that, I hope as you're listening, you'll begin to envision that as you make the things that you make and as you seek to make money from those things, that you don't just think offensively, but you also begin to imagine how much money you could make if you played defense too. You didn't choose the cards you were dealt, but you get to choose the way you're going to play them. If you want to be successful, you have to act with intention and move in a particular direction towards a particular goal. I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. J.D. Roth, welcome to Converge, the business of creativity. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you, Dane. Glad to be here. J.D., I'm wondering if you could share a little bit of your story. As Chris alluded to, yours is an unlikely hero's journey. How did you get to this this conversation? <laughs> That's a great question, and it seems like it should be a simple answer, but it's not because there are so many things that led to this point. I think uh, I'll, I'll do my best to summarize, I guess. So, uh, you know, I was uh, raised in a household where my parents didn't know how to handle money. They did their best, as everyone does, but... Uh, they pretty much lived paycheck to paycheck. They had no experience being good money managers themselves. So uh, the examples that I saw as a child, my parents couldn't teach me good financial skills. I, I never learned good financial skills from them. So I went off to college. I was surrounded by people that I perceived to be wealthy. Whether they were or not, I don't know, but I perceived them to be wealthy. They were certainly, they seemed to have more money than I ever had, had encountered before. And I wanted to fit in. And so in order to fit in, I uh, got in the habit of using credit cards to charge what I wanted to buy, to, to, to buy the clothes, to go out to eat, and so on. And uh, as a result, I graduated from college uh, with the start of a credit card problem. And within a few years, I had developed over $20,000 in credit card debt, and it just kind of kept spiraling out of control from there. I struggled with the debt for a long time, and then in about 2004, I decided I want to get out of debt, so I formulated this plan. Uh, I had noticed that you know, when I'm running my uh, personal business, when I was running the family business, I, I managed both of those businesses just fine, and in fact, they were very profitable. And I, wonder, I began to wonder, you know, what would happen if I use some of these business skills that uh, allow me to run profitable businesses? What if I try to use those at home? Could I have a profitable personal life? So starting from there, 
I tried to implement some of the things that I knew how to do to run a business. And it didn't happen overnight, but gradually I dug out of debt. I got rid of over $35,000 in consumer debt. I built wealth and I also built a profitable business. And eventually I reached the point where I am today where yes, I do have over a million dollars in the bank and I feel very fortunate and blessed. But a lot of this is because I decided I'm sick of being broke and I want to get out of debt and manage my life more like a business, I guess. You know, yours yours is a story that reminds me of a number of folks. Like I remember there was a book I read years ago. I think it was called um, Your Money or Your Life. And Yes, absolutely. And, and there was another book. Uh, well, of course, you know, I'm reminded of the the Dave Ramsey story. Is I remember he had this incredible car that he couldn't actually, didn't have enough money to put gas in. Uh, he had gotten, <laughs> so... Uh, I haven't heard that story. But. Well, I, apparently that's where he hit rock bottom was he he literally pulled up to a gas station in his sweet leased car and realized that his his credit card wouldn't take and he couldn't put gas in it. So yeah. he, he he had a nice ride, but couldn't afford to get around in it. That's right. What a great yeah. metaphor, right? Yeah. And uh, and that that began his pause to say, what the heck? And it sounds like for you, again, what I, I love is. You're telling a story in a very gracious way, both yourself and folks who are listening, because I know you're not alone. Like there are so many people, myself include everyone, at some point in their career, if they're risk taking ever, uh, they're going to be in a place where they're leveraged, where they, yeah, uh, they're doing, trying to do more with less. And uh, especially if you've been influenced by, I think of folks like Tim Ferriss, the idea of you know getting a lot out of a little in everything that you do. I even th- uh-huh. you mentioned credit cards. I think of, you know, I'm a travel hacker, thanks to Chris Gillibo. <laughs> and uh, there's ways to do that well and do that poorly. And and all of that, there's these narratives. And I know that the listeners at home can can relate to some version of that story. But there came a moment where you, you drew a line in the sand and you said, yeah. you know, no more. Talk a little bit about the importance of that first step of just deciding it's going to end. Well, for me, Dane, I struggled for a long time because I knew that I had a problem. I didn't like being in debt. And yet I had this like blueprint. I call it a financial blueprint that had been burned on my brain when I was younger. And it wasn't just for my parents. It wasn't just the fact that I had failed to learn proper money management from my parents, but it was also this blueprint of consumption. We live in a society that encourages consumption, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with consuming as long as you're doing it within your means and you're able to meet your basic goals that you've set for yourself. But my problem was I didn't have any personal goals. I hadn't set any personal goals, so I just spent on whatever seemed right at the time. And as a result, uh, I ended up in debt. Eventually, I reached a point where uh, my wife, now ex-wife, she and I uh, found a house that we liked, and on paper, we could afford it, and we're like, okay, let's, let's do it. I, I should mention briefly that my uh, ex-wife and I kept completely separate finances intentionally, and uh, partly because I was, a, I was poor with money. So she was always fine, but I, I struggled with debt. So anyway, we found this house that we liked and could afford on paper, and we bought it, and immediately I began to struggle. I felt like I was drowning in debt. I mean, I had already felt like I was drowning in debt, but now it was like, I, I, it was the straw that broke the camel's back, right? Mm. And I started talking with friends and my friends had been observing me for a long time and they were like, oh yeah, JD doesn't know how to handle money. And they'd even tried to approach me, but I wasn't ready to listen. But after buying this house uh, in late 2004, 
I was ready to listen. So people loaned me books, including the two books you just mentioned, Your Money or Your Life by Joe Dominguez and Vicki Robin. That was a very key book. And then also Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover. Uh, these two books and other books as well played a huge role in uh, helping me see how I could get out of debt. And again, as I mentioned before, uh, the idea that I could uh, run my personal life as if I were running a business, that, that was key too. So I guess the trigger point was buying that house and feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm chained to my job, I'm chained to my debts, what am I going to do? And I, I decided I was going to formulate a plan that would allow me to get out of debt, and that's what I did. I, I came up with a, a plan that would get me out of debt in something like just over three years. I stuck to that plan, and I managed to make it work. Well, and through the process, you ended up sharing your journey along the way. Right. Uh, and you started the, the very clever Get Rich Slowly <laughs> blog that a lot of folks are familiar with. But talk a little bit about not only the process, but also as you're processing it, you're transparent and, you know, naked in the wind, telling people what you're walking yeah. through. Uh, what Did that help in the kind of keeping your commitment part of it all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the thing to realize is, uh, you know, earlier you asked me what led me to where I am. And I, I only told the financial side, but there, there's a whole bunch of other sides too, because uh, whether we like it or not, there's these threads in our life and they're all leading us someplace and we don't know where it is. And in my case, they happen to be leading me to write a blog about personal finance, uh, especially from a psychological side. And I, looking back, it all seems very clear, but there's no way I could have realized that that's where life was taking me because, uh, you know, blogs didn't exist uh, much before I started it. So I have a psychology degree. I, I went to college, I studied psychology, and I'm, I've been keenly interested in uh, psychology and personal motivation and self-improvement all of my life. I've also always been a writer from third grade on. I, I've, I've written primarily poetry and, and science fiction, but I just love to write in general. So uh, I had been keeping a blog, uh, just a personal blog, where I wrote about cats and computers and comic books and, th and that sort of thing. I started that in 1997 before there were even such things as blogs. It was, I called it a web journal. Hmm. In 2004, as I was reading these books, I started taking notes on the personal finance books. And so in early 2005, I wrote an article called Get Rich Slowly. And I published that to my personal blog. And for whatever reason, it got picked up on uh, some more popular sites such as Boing Boing. And uh, they linked back to it. And the article got a lot of attention and it made me realize that people got some useful information out of what I had written and maybe I ought to start an, a personal finance blog. I thought it'd be the first personal finance blog on the internet, to be honest. Now, little did I know there are already dozens of others. Huh. And so I started a site called Get Rich Slowly. And um, the reason I called it Get Rich Slowly is because I felt like that in these books that I was reading, this seemed to be the common theme. The, the books would say, you can't get rich quickly, but you can get rich slowly if you just do certain things. It's funny. I, I don't know if Chris actually said this, and I've mentioned I mentioned Chris Gilbo a number of times. He's a past right. guest on Converge, but I attribute this quote to him all the time: the idea that you can have it all, you just can't have it all at once, uh -huh. and, and and this idea of putting yourself in a position so that you know whether it be unfavorable events coming your way that somehow you could benefit from them, or putting yourself in a situation where like because you know unfavorable events are very predictable; they're going to happen in life, right? Uh, but yet oftentimes, at least for me, when I've been, when I've made poor financial decisions and I've made plenty, it's usually been because I've been naive. I thought there was only upside and it seems like there was a lot of smarter, a lot smarter people than myself who 
would anticipate actually the downsides to, you know, whether it be a economic cycle or right. whatever. And they actually bet on those things and they diversified their investing in such a way where when negative things happen, they benefit. And when positive things happen, they benefit. But overall, they kept benefiting in an incremental way. And right. you add that up over time and it's not incremental. It ends up being, it, it explodes uh, the yeah. kinds of return people get. Yeah, that, that, what you're describing, it, it actually reminds me of, uh, I'm looking for a book on my shelf here. Is it, anti, is it anti-fragile? No, no, no. It, it's a book by Harry Brown. Uh, Harry Brown wrote two great books. Uh, he's best known for being the libertarian candidate for president, uh, I think like 96, 2000. Okay. I don't care about his politics. What I care about are two of the books he wrote. I don't see them here. Uh, one of them is uh, about what he calls the permanent portfolio. Hmm. And uh, I think he calls the book Fail-Safe Investing. And basically he says you, the best investment strategy that he's been able to find, you take your uh, money that you're going to invest, you divide it into four equal chunks. One of them, one chunk is gold. One is the total stock market in the form of an index fund probably. Uh, one is cash and one is bonds. And uh, these four different asset classes move independently of each other. So if you have all your money in there, there's always going to be one that's lagging behind. There's always going to be one that's stellar. And uh, in general, you're going to get a steady return. And I don't remember when he wrote this book. I think it was the early 1990s. But uh, his hypothesis has been borne out uh, thus far. I don't actually do what he suggests, but it's exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, away from investing, I think the the bulk of the folks who are listening, if you're making stuff and trying to make money from your stuff, and if you're at the early stage of these things, uh, investing actually feels like a foreign concept. Yeah. It's really, yeah. it's like, how do I stop the bleeding before? And, and especially if you're, if you can relate to the whole idea of consumption and uh, comparison and envy and thinking that everyone else is making it when you're not, all the self-talk conversations that yeah. are not resourceful. If someone is stuck in those dialogues either with themselves or they just are constantly staring at where everyone else is a success and they actually feel as though they're the only failure or their primary failure. How mm -hmm. do you overcome that conversation? Well, it's a process. It doesn't happen all at once. The most important thing that I think anyone can do, uh, not just in their financial life, but in general, is to stop comparing yourself to other people. Stop being motivated by goals that are set by other people and instead Focus on what is intrinsically important to you. And if you don't know what's intrinsically important to you, spend some time to figure that out. Uh, I feel like so many people operate without a set of overriding goals to direct their life. And this causes problems because, as I think I mentioned earlier, if you don't have specific goals, if you don't know which direction you're going in or want to go, then it doesn't matter which direction you do go. And so if you don't know, for example that your goal is to, let's say, uh, uh, retire by age 40 so you can travel the world. If you don't know that's your goal, then it doesn't make any difference if you go out and buy a new car because uh, that new car is just as good as any other choice. But if you do know that your goal is to retire by age 40 so you can travel the world, then you know that it, buying a new car totally defeats the purpose of what you set out for your life. And so you make a different choice instead. You might choose to go without a car uh, I, let's go back to Chris Gillibo as an example. Uh, Chris wanted to travel and see every country in the world by the time he turned 35. And so rather than own a car, what he did is he biked. He took public transportation. He walked. 
he and his wife did not have a car until after he completed that. That's amazing to hear because when people hear his name, it's tempting to think, well, he just, he must be a gazillionaire. And, and right now I suspect he actually is pretty doing all right. Uh, But, (laughs) but I guess those are the stories that I wish we could hold up more often and celebrate as opposed to the pretense that kind of gets built in. And I guess it, it partly is, it's, I mean, we're part of the problem, right? There's this, you know, personal brands that are being projected out into the planet and it's not like they're dishonest, but they're not. They're not the full spectrum of all that's going on. No one sees right. my fight and, and with my wife. They don't necessarily tell the whole story either, right? Right. I mean, right. Uh, you get a glimpse of the story. You, you you listen to this podcast and you hear, "Oh, JD Roth has a million dollars." Well, that's great. But what you don't hear is uh, how I maintain that, what I do, or what I did to get the money. Yeah. And uh, it, it's not something that just like instantaneously happens. Uh, I've been fortunate, yes, that's true, and blessed. But I, I think. Again, Dane, like we talked about earlier, it's very important not to compare yourself to other people or to the media. I think, you know, I've been thinking and writing a lot lately about how the wealthy behave. I've had people asking me questions in part because I'm launching the Get Rich Slowly course. So they want to talk about, okay, how are rich people? How do they act? What do they do? Hmm. And to be honest, the people that I know in my life, it's, I call them like quiet millionaires. There's a, a, a book that I read that I really like called The Quiet Millionaire. And it's about people who have a lot of money, but aren't flashy. And the people I know who ha- are wealthy, you would never know they are because they live just regular everyday lives. In, in many ways, um, they live more modest lives than the average person. They, they drive used cars. Uh, I'm thinking of one guy in particular who drives like a 1984 minivan and lives in a home he's owned for 50 years. And that's part of the reason he's wealthy. He never yeah. made, he was a school teacher. He never made an exorbitant amount of money. He just made sure that he kept his spending far below his income. Yeah. In that regard, it's not complicated theoretically. It's just well, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the math isn't complicated. The the math of personal finance is so simple. Uh, but the problem is, if it were all about math, we'd be rich, right? And we'd all be thin. But <laughs> it, it's not just about math. It's about psychology. It's about uh, emotions. And because we get wrapped up in the emotional things, the things we want, uh, our expectations and desires, it, it is easy to get trapped in a cycle of consumption or uh, to spend more than we earn. And uh, I think, well, as, as I say in, in the, the guide that I just wrote, the single most important principle people can realize is that you need to spend less than you earn. And it's not just enough to do that. If you want to really achieve your goals, you have to spend a lot less than you earn. The popular advice is to save like 10 or 20% of your income. And that's great. You'll get to your goals. But if you save just 10 or 20%, it's going to take all of your life to reach your goals. It's going to take you 45 years. But if you do something a little bit uncommon, what some people might call extreme, if you were able to save half of your income, for example, you could save enough to retire within about 15 years. Mm-hmm. The, the issue is most people aren't willing to, to do that. And I, I think it's because they don't realize they could. Well, I want to get to this unconventional guide in just a minute. But before we get there, you're, you're piquing my interest around this notion of, of habit development, of developing mm-hmm. the habit of, you know, doing the uncommon. I love how you frame that. And in particular, it connects a little bit to what I've heard you describe in your own journey. And it's partly part of my own journey. My journey too right now is uh, developing the habit of writing uh, right. as it connects to whether it be, you know, goals with stuff I'm making or 
you know, personal discovery or ultimately could be just content output and, you know, a, a means to market the things that I'm making. I'm in the, in the process this year of writing a thousand words every day for the year. I want to write, I wanted to write a million words this year that felt overwhelming. So I went with, <laughs> yeah, it would with, feel overwhelming to me. <laughs> so I went with a, a, a one, one full article, a thousand words every day uh, for, the, for the year. And it, it felt incredibly overwhelming when I started uh, but I started before the year was done. This is 2013. Mm-hmm. I started with like 250 words, 500 words, got to 750 pretty quick, jumped on 750words.com, which I really enjoyed. And uh, that helped my habit a little bit. But then, but then now that I've kicked into gear, a thousand a day actually is just, it's kind of like, you know, I take out the trash, I brush my teeth, I write a thousand words. Like that's just what, <laughs> that's what, I, that's what I do every day. And, and I've been amazed at the benefit, the surprising benefit of my consciousness. I feel awake. I feel like there's a, a presence. I don't want to get new agey in this because I, I don't. Is it kind of meditative? Well, and, and not really. That's the irony for me. It's, oh. it's not like it's, uh, you know, the, the what is that? The daily pages or uh, artist's way idea. It's, oh, it's, okay. it's, it's less just, it's not cathartic. It's really, I'm writing a, a serious article every day with, you know, title, yeah. subtitle, keywords, photo, arc of a story. Huh. But for whatever reason, the process of writing, it does raise my, when I have to cloak my thoughts with actual words to have them take shape, I find myself more awake at the wheel, uh, more more than I would have anticipated. I'm wondering when you're, when you're guiding people to take responsibility for their money, I'm wondering if there's ancillary benefit to help them take responsibility for their thought life or take responsibility, you know, that kind of thing. Could talk a little bit about that. Uh, Well, that's a fantastic question, Dane, because uh, what I like to say is that I don't really write about money. What I'm actually writing about is happiness. And you, you mentioned the fact that it's kind of like habit change. And, uh, and this is exactly right. So when I'm writing about money and encouraging people to change their habits, this is the skills they develop by learning to manage money correctly are skills they can put to use in other forms. I know this because I've done it myself. So not only did I get rid of a bunch of debt and uh, uh, build wealth, but I also lost 50 pounds. Mm. I, I used these skills uh, that I acquired to learn Spanish and to become disciplined enough to study guitar. But it, it, it's going to happen. So yes, my, uh, my mission is actually to help people improve their lives in all aspects, not just with money, but in every aspect. And the ultimate goal Uh, which I think is the ultimate goal for everyone, regardless of whether they believe it or not, is to help people achieve happiness. I have a good friend who, um, he is a a pastor type, like he has a chance to Mm -hmm. preach to people all the time. And one of the things he'll comment on is, you know, most conversations, if you boil it down, it comes down to the topics come down to money, sex, and power. Uh, (laughs) That's what they're all, they all about. And if you can work those out, really, you can work out the whole of your life. And huh. in some ways, I'm, what I'm hearing you articulate is, yeah, since money is so core to so many people's lives and, and they end up either becoming enslaved to it or they become master of it, that when they, when they, when they pick their position, whether they want to be enslaved or they want to dominate their money or their financial lives, what I'm hearing you say is that's, that is a concrete and tangible road to liberty. Yes, absolutely. And uh, kind of the way you phrase it there reminds me of... Uh... It's the seven habits of highly effective people. Sure. In that, Stephen R. Covey talks about 
I don't remember his terminology, and, and that's what I was going to look up. But I call it an internal locus of control versus an external locus of control. And people who have an external con- locus of control believe that life happens to them. And uh, this is not necessarily to say that they, they uh, are victims of life or that they have a victim mentality. It's just that they feel like life is beyond their control and uh, that they're uh, subject to the whims of fate, I guess. And people with an internal locus of control, on the other hand, feel as if they're kind of active agents in controlling their destiny. And for me, I used to have an external locus of control. Uh, I thought that my financial situation was, how do I say that? I knew that I was responsible for getting myself in debt, but I didn't see how I was going to get myself out of debt. I felt as if something was going to have to come along to save me. I was going to have to have a windfall, something Something else was going to have to get me out of debt. And I, I guess I kind of felt the same way about uh, my physical state. I, I'm not sure why. But uh, it was only when I changed to have an internal locus of control and realized that, hey, nobody cares more about my money than I do. If I'm going to get out of debt, I need to do it myself. It was only once I changed my uh, way of thinking that I was able to uh, get control of my money in my life. I was desperately looking up a quote online. I heard Jay-Z over the weekend. I read some quote. I don't know where it was on Twitter, but I'm going (laughs) to butcher it. So if you're listening, Jay-Z, please forgive me. (laughs) But uh, I think he said something like um, handouts didn't work for me, so I chose the man route. And uh, there was something about when I read it, uh, you know, you can hear his voice, of course, and and, um, it adds, adds to the lore here. But uh, when I'm struck by that, and I don't want to make it sound this this kind of machoism, but just what I what I hear in it is just a sense of responsibility. Like I'm I'm going to own my lot. Uh, and if yeah. you got some people got get handed really crappy lots, and those people when they own their lot, they tend to become superhuman. Like the kind the people that we look at and we go, oh my gosh, I can't believe yeah. they've done what they've done. And and other folks that may have less dramatic lives, they're the ones that you described who are driving the cool microbus. Yeah. Uh, and we're school teachers and are independently wealthy, but you don't know it. Um, yeah. But both are pretty superhero stories in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. What I like to say is uh, your situation may not be your fault, but it's your res- responsibility to change it. You are the only one who's going to change the situation you're in, no matter how you got there. Uh, and another way to look at that is uh, you you didn't choose the cards you were dealt, but you get to choose the way you're going to play them. And so... Some people are dealt winning hands, but they don't have the guts to uh, see it through. They they fold because people because life causes them to. Uh, oh, I can't even do the poker metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 some people some people are dealt lousy hands and they make the most of it, right? Yeah. They, they they bluff their way through and uh, through skill or whatever that they're they're able to uh, achieve more than people who have better hands. And so, uh, well, they do whatever it takes. Yeah, absolutely. And so I floundered around for a long time feeling sorry for myself for coming from a poor background and and for uh, not having what I thought were advantages that other people had. And eventually I realized I had to stop blaming outside forces and uh, being jealous of other people. And I had to just buckle down and do the work. And if I wanted something, I had to go get it. But I think a lot of times, to be honest, Dane, that's a wisdom that comes with maturity. When I look around, it's uh, it's the older people who seem to have recognized this. Not all the time, because there are plenty of people my age who still 
have this mentality that, oh, it's external forces controlling my life. But it is something that's easier to recognize when you're older than when you're younger, I think. At 45, like me, it's much easier to see than when I was 25. Well, and, and there, I'm guessing there's the advantage, right? So if someone's listening to this and they're 23 and they mm -hmm. go, I'm going to wake up now. Like, I'm not going to wait two decades. I'm going to do it today. The advantage they have by just reclaiming those 10 or 20 years, extraordinary. Like, I'm a late bloomer. I figured these yeah. things out a little late in the game. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I am I can get frustrated and look back and go, oh, my gosh. But at least uh, that's not even helpful either. It's more helpful to go, okay, well, here I am. Now what? And uh, yeah. But if someone is listening and they happen to go, I'm actually going to do the alternative route. I'm going to go in the direction, you know, to quote Zig Ziglar, when everyone's zigging, I'm going to zag. <laughs> uh, I, if I can somehow get my head on straight now, the, the power and the position they're going to be in just by letting time go by and playing the game right, it, it's extraordinary. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. There's a real challenge, though, for young people, uh, a couple of challenges, really. Talk about a 23-year-old who uh, is listening to this, and you hear me say, oh, if you save 50% of your income for 15 years, you can have early retirement. Now, it's a true statement, but for a 23-year-old, 15 years represents more than half their life so far. Right. Whereas for me right now, it's it's a third of my life or less than a third of my life. So it, I recognize that it works. But as a 23-year-old, you think, oh, well, you know, I have time to get around to it eventually. Or I don't want to live on just 50% of my income because I'll have to live like a college student. And you, it feels more like a sacrifice than, I guess, a, a choice to have freedom in the future. Yeah, an investment. But if, if there are 23-year-olds out there listening and – you heed this advice and you're willing to follow it for 10, 15 years, you really will put yourself in a position that's so far ahead of your peers that by the time you're 35, 38 years old, the world will be your oyster. You'll, you'll be able to do whatever the hell you want. Let's talk a little bit about this unconventional guide that you made for people. Okay. Uh, um, it's called Be Your Own CFO. And uh, again, even in, in the title, it, it's kind of this invitation to to take the reins of your life yeah. financially. I'm just, you know, I, I've been combing through. You, you were gracious enough to, to give me an advanced copy and the, you know, Be Your Own CFO, the unconventional guide to mastering your money from this get rich slowly idea. And... I've been, I, I was telling you before we, we jumped online um, that I thought I could skim through it and very quickly get it all. And I, I do get it from the perspective of I see where you're coming from, but mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of really helpful perspective here. Everything from, you know, starting in mission goals and action plans and then moving to the process, like really considering how I'm going to do each piece and then understanding the financial side, like how you know, what are the metrics that I should be measuring? And then mm -hmm. what are the tools I can put together, like budgets? And ultimately, what am I doing this for in terms of profit? How does overhead come into play? How does revenue come into play? There's so many, and I'm just, you know, this is just the beginning. There's so much more. Mm -hmm. But in broad strokes, if people have the opportunity to get this guide and really give this a go, what are they going to get? Uh, well, I think what they'll get is uh, kind of a framework for operating as the chief financial officer of their life, just as they would be the CFO of a business. And uh, instead of trying to have to puzzle through 
how to take control of their uh, personal finances. Uh, what I'm trying to do is share how I was able to take control of mine. I, I share the wisdom, basically, of the last 10 years that I've had in reading and writing about money. I, I made a career out of this. And so I'm taking the best things I've learned, the most effective things I've learned, and creating this framework so that people don't have to reinvent the wheel as they're uh, attempting to get out of debt or, or build wealth or um, try to save for early retirement. Uh, I'm trying to provide a set of best practices that people can use to do this themselves. I'm curious, uh, I heard through the grapevine, uh, and we don't need to name numbers here because it, it, <laughs> people can go and, and find out for themselves, but I heard through the grapevine how much you're charging for this thing. And it, it's kind of, it's kind of ridiculous, like how little it is that you got, you and Chris, um, have collaborated on this and are making it available for so many people. What was your thinking in terms of delivering it at, at such a low price point? Well, you, you know, that was a hard decision. We, we uh, I actually, uh, just before I started talking to you, I was talking to somebody else who asked a very similar question. Uh, on the one hand, I feel like this information is very valuable and it's, uh, it's going to repay the reader really quickly. I mean, putting these ideas into practice, you can make back the purchase price real quick. But at the same time, I recognize that if somebody is struggling with money and they're in debt, it's kind of unfair to ask them to uh, put out a lot of money to purchase a product, even if it can help them. I've seen uh, get out of debt courses online that cost hundreds of dollars. And I get that those courses are very useful to the people who are going to uh, purchase them. But at the same time, uh, I, I just didn't want to be in a position of asking somebody who's struggling with money to uh, put out that much. So, so when people get this for the first time, in addition to all the content itself, uh, there's also like an ongoing process. You're engaging with them along right. the way. Talk a little bit about that, that aspect of the course. Well, so when we were trying to develop this, uh, we started with the unconventional guide, uh, the be your own CFO. That was the core piece. And then we thought, okay, what else can we do that would be useful? And I said, well, you know, I have this network of people that I know that I've built up over the past decade, all sorts of financial journalists and writers and uh, just average people. And uh, a lot of them have some unique and interesting things to say about money. I, and so I said, why don't I conduct some interviews with these people? And so that's what I did. I have no experience with podcasting or anything like that, but I contacted a bunch of um, different financial experts and other people like Gretchen Rubin, who writes about happiness. Mm. And uh, I conducted interviews that range in length from like 20 minutes to 40 minutes. And uh, each person talks to me about uh, whatever their subject of expertise is. So Gretchen and Ruben and I, Gretchen Rubin and, and I had a terrific conversation about uh, money and happiness and how they're related. And then we're like, okay, well, what else can we do to provide value? For me, as I thought about it, I realized, you know, one habit that really helped me turn things around was to set aside a specific day each week to handle my personal finances. And that's one of the things that I, I mentioned in the guide is I want people to do that. And so we decided, well, what if we sent out one email a week to remind people to take care of their personal finances and at the same time share some of the, like, the most important tips uh, that I've learned along the way. So not everything fits in the guide. The guide has a very limited conceit and that's to be the CFO of your own life. So uh, what about other things that don't necessarily apply? Like um, what about estate planning? Yeah, where does that fit? So for example, then I've got an email written about uh, best practices for estate planning and what you ought to do. And so for a year, 
uh, an entire year, we're going to send out one email a week with uh, best tips. And then we'll try to encourage people who purchase the uh, course to stay focused on their money for that period of time. Powerful. So in, in many ways, it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, if you're, you mentioned, you know, losing all of the weight that you lost or some yeah. people who are taking on either exercise habits or new eating habits. Uh, we had a past guest, Sarah, Dallas and Melissa Hartwig, uh, who they, they have this, uh, they're paleo experts and they have this oh. great book called, uh, it starts with food. And it was so striking to me how similar that conversation is to this <laughs> conversation. It just their topic is about food consumption and your topic is about money consumption. But, but I guess in that regard, there's a, an invitation embedded in this where if people are listening and they're going, okay, like maybe, maybe right now money isn't their issue, but mm -hmm. there's something that is just, it is having them more than they are having it in life. They're not, they're not, whether it be CFO or CEOing their life or, yeah. or uh, CMOing their life, <laughs> whatever it is, they want to date and they want to market themselves better, whatever it is, <laughs> uh, there's a sense in which. It, there is a commonality in the conversation. And even when you reference, it's funny that at the top of the show, when I gave your introduction and I read that quote from Chris Gillibo, that came from a, his newsletter that I get that I love. And in it, at the bottom of that newsletter, he actually references you and Gretchen, who you just mentioned. And Jonathan Fields. And Jonathan Fields, who I'm a big yeah. fan of. And of course, Chris. You know, So I, I think of all those people and you all have different emphases and, and things that you talk about, but this birds of a feather idea that when you align yourself around these conversations, whether it be around money or food or your business or your creativity, whatever it is, that they, they build on each other, almost like a peloton of potential where, <laughs> you know, it's not just one person being able to cut through the wind to make it happen, but you guys are, you guys are like a train rolling. <laughs> and, and then, and then even the added advantage of, you know, who... Who do you call when you have a question about happiness? Well, I'm guessing it's Gretchen, uh, even right. though even though when you're on the conversation with her, she's asking you just the same as much as she's asking you because you're in the same you're in the same frame of mind, right? Um, so talk a little bit about this complementary nature of when you get your crap together in one area of your life, it begs for you to get it together in a lot of other areas. Well, you make me think of a lot of different things here. Um, you're right that. Uh, it, there is this like a uh, synergistic effect where you pull together your personal finances, for example, and then you start working on your health and all of a sudden the dominoes start falling into place. That doesn't really make sense, does it? Because dominoes don't fall into place, but you get what I mean. Well, no, the pieces I, I start falling into I, place. I do get it because there is yeah. a sense in which there's like, uh, I have a, a friend, his name is uh, Emerson Egrich and he talks about, he gives a lot of conversations, he and his wife around the, the marriage cycle and how oh. marriage is either, they're always in a state of spiral. Either they're spiraling down or they're spiraling up. And the, <laughs> and the momentum, you get to contribute to the momentum in one direction or the other. But the crazy cycle going down, it's very predictable and it can actually build on each other. And it's what makes it so tough for so many folks. Like, huh. Likewise, if you don't have intention to spiral it up by, by sewing into it, in a particular kind of way, you're going to reap, you're going to reap whatever you're sowing. Uh, well, and you just mentioned intention again, and I want to keep going back to that because I think this is such an important point uh, with money and with everything else. I feel like people have to have more intention. If you want to be successful, you have to act with intention and move in a particular direction towards a particular goal. 
And that's true in a global sense with money, but it's also true on a, on a smaller level too. I talk a lot about what I call conscious spending and other people might call it mindful spending. And that notion is just making sure that whatever you buy, you're doing it intentionally. You're not doing it out of reflex. You're not doing it just because you're trying to keep up with the Joneses, but because it's somehow aligned with your values and you're making a conscious decision to purchase something for a particular reason. I am so excited for the people who are about to pick up this Be Your Own CFO and Conventional Guide. How can people find you and how can people find the guide? Uh, well, they can find me. Right now, I'm still writing a little bit at getrichslowly.org, not.com.org. Uh, but lately, uh, I've been writing a lot more at jdroth.com. I'm in the middle of a, a year-long series, actually, in which I talk a lot about overcoming fear, uh, gaining confidence, choosing happiness, and also then where it's going to end up in a discussion of what personal and uh, financial freedom are like. And so I'm really excited about that. That that's that's my life work. I feel like right now it is what I'm doing at jdroth.com, and uh, the unconventional guide. Uh, we're calling the overall course is called Get Rich Slowly, just like the blog is. It's the Get Rich Slowly course, and uh, the Be Your Own CF guide. Be Your Own CFO Guide is a part of that course, and you can find that at moneytoolbox.com. And uh, it comes with the the guide, the 18 interviews, the year-long email series, and uh, a bunch of other stuff too, including a website. Any final words that that for folks whose interest is peaked here, and they're, they're, uh, they might go to the website, they might not, but they, uh, regardless... It, it's the one thought that you want to have ringing in their ears that they could make the sound decision based on. What what would you wish them to be thinking about? Uh, again, I would go back to this whole notion that uh, we can choose how we respond to life and uh, ultimately uh, who we are and what we do and what we get out of life has more to do with how we react than it does to what life does to us. And so I would say if there's one thing that I want people to take away is you are responsible for the meaning you get out of your life. You've just got to find a way to do it. This was episode 018 of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. FastTrackCreative.com is our home where you'll find past episodes, our Better Together creativity community, and a ton of other resources for artists looking to make a difference with their creations. Music today provided by TripleScoopMusic.com. Sound as good as you look. Thanks to Anna Quaza at acreative.co for her audio production. And a special thanks to JD for being with us. Visit him at jdroth.com. As usual, I also want to thank you for spreading the word about the show. When you leave questions and comments on the site and rate us on places like iTunes, we recognize that you caring enough to do that sort of thing is a really big deal, and we're grateful. That's it for now. I'm Dane Sanders. I'll see you here next time.